Good morning. Happy New Year. All right, this morning we are going to get back into our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, This last month we took a break from our study of Luke in order to take a look at Christmas through the eyes of different people and people groups. Uh, We looked at Christmas through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah, through the eyes of the shepherds, through the eyes of Joseph and the believer, and then finally through the eyes of the Magi. Uh, I hope that you were blessed uh, throughout our special Christmas series as we focused in upon the celebration of Christ's coming. I know that I was, uh, not only in my own studies and preparations for the first few messages, but equally blessed to have Keegan and and Perry uh, step up and fill the pulpit in my absence. They did a great job. I'm very thankful for them. But I will be completely honest, I am glad to get any to be getting back into our regular verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. I just love the simplicity of just going through the Bible, verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, and allowing the Lord to lead the way. It is a a blessing to do so. Well, uh, also today we have uh, set aside some time at the conclusion of our service to participate in observing the Lord's Supper here. It's the first Sunday of the month, first Sunday of the year uh, a great time to uh, remind ourselves of Christ's sacrifice for us. And so let's go ahead and get into our study and all that the Lord has for us today. This morning, we're going to be beginning a new section in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, as of late, if you recall, the overall context of what we've been studying in Luke's Gospel has covered Jesus's ministry in the region of Galilee. Remember that Jesus's primary base of operations was out of the city of Capernaum. He would often launch out from there and go throughout the surrounding land, ministering to the individuals and to the masses. Up until this point, we've seen Jesus complete two different tours throughout the region, going around preaching and teaching to the masses, healing the sick and the demon-possessed. His first tour through the area was covered in chapters 5 and 6, and his second tour was covered primarily in chapters 7 and 8. In chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, we will begin and end what most consider to be Jesus' third and final tour through the region of Galilee. And as we look at the events and details surrounding Jesus' third tour through the area, my hope is that we would be encouraged and challenged and even stirred uh, by what we read. That we would glean some wonderful truths about our Lord and His heart for ministry and look to put those truths into action in our own lives. And so... If you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9 if you haven't done so already. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 9 verses 1 through 9 and a message that I've entitled Ministry Truths. Okay, once you're there, I'd like to invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read through our text this morning in my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along. Luke writes the following in chapter 9, verse 1. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you 
when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. And we're going to stop right there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity that we have to open it, to glean from it, to learn, to grow. Lord, I pray that you would meet us in this place and lead and guide us through your word. Give us ears to hear all that your spirit desires to say to us, your church. We give you ourselves, our lives, and our service, and uh, this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In our text this morning, we have two sections that we're going to be covering, the first of which will deal with details regarding the sending out of the twelve by Jesus in verses 1 through 6, and we're going to spend the majority of our time there this morning. The second will deal with details regarding the seeking of Jesus by Herod the Tetrarch in verses 7 through 9. As we go through each section, we're going to note various truths about ministry that I hope we will be encouraged and challenged by and that we will look to apply these truths to our own lives. So let's dive into this first section dealing with the sending by Jesus. Okay, verse 1 and 2. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Our text begins with Jesus calling his disciples together for a meeting of sorts. Jesus was about to send out his 12 hand-selected disciples to go out and to do that which he had showed them and exampled for them during the first two tours of Galilee. These disciples of Jesus have been following him around. They've been listening to him preach about the kingdom of God and the gospel message. They've been watching him heal the sick and cast out demons. And now it was time for them to step up and to step out in faith and allow and to follow, excuse me, in the footsteps of their Lord, continuing in the ministry that he had begun. I want you to notice the first of many observations regarding the work of the ministry here in our opening verse. The first thing I want to highlight has to do with the fact that Jesus called these men to meet with him prior to them being sent out. And when it comes to ministry and our calling, Jesus calls us to himself first and foremost. God has called each of us. If you are a son or daughter of the Lord this morning, it is because God has called you to himself. We have We all have a calling upon our lives. You know, Paul talks a a lot about this calling. He does so often. Uh, In his second letter to Timothy, Paul writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has been given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. 
In 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes to them about their calling, saying, But we are bound to give thanks to the God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has a calling upon our lives that is according to his grace and something that was set before time even began. Paul tells us that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so we all have a general calling to come to Jesus first, to come to salvation. But we also have a special calling and a gifting that is from the Lord as well. A holy calling for each of us as we walk with the Lord. It is a call to fulfill the works that he has planned and purposed for each of us. You know, some of you, a majority of you, okay, have been called by God to serve your country through the military. Some of you have been called as educators. Some of you have been called to raise up future generations of leaders. We all have different callings upon our lives, okay? a specific calling upon our lives that will lead us in different directions and to different ambitions. But I need to remind you and I need you to remember that our calling is always to Jesus first. You cannot fulfill your calling in life without first coming to Jesus. You know, if you find yourself wondering about your purpose in life, what God has for you, okay, what he has called you to, know and understand that it will always begin with simply coming to Jesus and being with him. Let me highlight another observation here in our first verse that I believe is worth noting. Verse 1 states that Jesus called his 12 disciples and then gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Jesus called them and then empowered them. Oftentimes, I think we limit ourselves and we believe the Lord can't use us because we don't have certain talents or abilities. This verse shows us that when it comes to ministry, God does not call the able, but he enables the called. God isn't limited to using only those who are extremely gifted. He calls whom he wants and after calling them, he enables them to do what he asks. We could be confident That if God is asking us to do something, that he will empower us with the strength to do so. And I don't know about you, but for me, this truth brings great peace to my life. I may not be the most gifted pastor, the most eloquent preacher, but I am confident that God, by his grace, has called me to this work. And as such, I can be confident that he will equip me for this calling and make up for anything that I lack. You know, my pastor, uh, Pastor Rick Barnett in Okinawa, he used to always say, God supplies the batteries. He would often tell the story of how excited he would get when opening uh, and going through his Christmas stocking and he would find batteries in his Christmas stocking. You guys know what that means, right? When you get batteries in your Christmas stocking? (laughs) Something under the tree takes batteries, right? And that's always a good thing. Uh, At least for guys, I think that's always a good thing. Um, 
Isn't it the worst when you get a, a Christmas gift, you get a birthday gift uh, that requires batteries, but you don't have the batteries to go along with it? Okay, I, I hope none of you guys did that to any of your kids or loved ones this Christmas. Um, it's the worst. You know, you get in, you're like, all right, let's play with this remote control car. And, oh, it takes like six double A's. It's like, oh my goodness, six double A's. I don't have six double A's, you know. Um, God supplies the batteries, okay? When it comes to Jesus and his gifting and his calling upon our lives, he always gives us the power to accomplish that which he has called us to. In ministry, God enables those whom he calls. In verse 2, we read of Jesus sending his disciples out. And while this is a simple observation, I still think it is worth noting. The word sent here in the Greek is distinct. In English, we have one word that we use for sin, but in the Greek, there are two different words that are translated into the same English word for sin. There's the Greek word pempo, which simply means to sin. Okay? That is not the Greek word that's used here. Instead, the Greek word used here is the word apostello. It's where we get our English word apostle from. The Greek word apostello does not mean simply to sin but rather to send forth on a certain mission. It carries with it the idea of one who has been dispatched toward a designated goal or purpose. Very simply, an apostle is someone who has been sent on a specific mission, one who has been sent with a purpose or with a certain goal in mind. And while I think the specific office of apostle is something that was for those who lived and saw the earthly ministry of Jesus. Uh, the function, I believe, of the apostle carries on today throughout the church. Today's missionaries of the church are basically apostles who have been sent out on a specific mission for the Lord. And when it comes to ministry, I need to encourage you all. We all have a mission field that we have been sent to. God has us strategically placed to accomplish a mission for Him, to spread His gospel message to the world around each of us. You don't need to travel halfway around the world to be a missionary for the Lord. Sometimes the mission is a local one. Sometimes God wants to send you to your community, to your neighbor, okay, to your coworker to your family member, to your friend, or even to that person that you keep on bumping into at the store throughout the community and you see them over and over again, pray about that person. It may be that God has a specific calling upon your life to minister to that person. And I trust that as we are sensitive to Holy Spirit's leading and guiding in our lives, that He will show us our mission field. And He will show us what He has sent us to do for what he has sent for us to do. I want to make another observation here. It isn't necessarily explicitly told us in Luke's gospel, but it is seen in the parallel account of Mark. In Mark's gospel, we're told that when Jesus sent the disciples out, that he sent them out two by two. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, it tells us that. You see, none of the disciples were sent out alone. None of them were left to do ministry alone. They were sent out in pairs. Though Mark doesn't specifically tell us why Jesus sent them in pairs of two, there are a number of good reasons to support why he would do so. 
perhaps for fellowship and an encouragement as they would go from place to place. And perhaps they wouldn't see the same results they witnessed from Jesus' ministry. If they were together, they could encourage one another and continue to stir one another towards the work God had called them to, to persevere together. Perhaps Jesus paired them up in such a way as to complement each other uh, in regards to their own personalities and their own giftings. Where one lacked, the other could perhaps make up for it with a, a strength of their own. Perhaps it was for accountability. Any sort of accusation can be brought against you if you're all alone and you don't have anyone to back you up or to support you. Jesus could have sent them in pairs for any number of reasons. The thing that we want to take special note of is that Jesus sent them out together and he expected them to work together. You see, in ministry, none of us are called to be lone rangers. We aren't called to do things on our own. God wants us to partner together with other brothers and sisters in fulfilling God's calling upon our lives. And this is one of the beauties of the church. People coming together, serving one another, partnering together with one another to accomplish God's will. God has given us one another that we may be able to assist one another and serve one another in completing the mission God has for each of us. We need each other. May I encourage you? May I exhort you even, plead with you? Get plugged in. (laughs) Don't be aloof. Don't distance yourself. Jump in. Get involved. Ministry is meant to be done together. We all have a part to play. Well, Jesus, he sent them out two by two, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. The word preach means to announce publicly, to proclaim with the goal of persuasion or to urge someone uh, towards something. Its most basic meaning really is just to herald. As the disciples went out, they were to be bold and persuasive with their presentation of the message. And the message was simple. The message was a message about the kingdom of God, that it was near, that God was on the move, that he was doing something special and the people needed to be ready for it. The message that Jesus told his disciples to preach is the same message that God told John the Baptist to preach. And it's the same message that Jesus preached himself. The message they were to preach and proclaim wasn't any different than what had already been previously proclaimed. And I see in this a very important principle when it comes to ministry. You see, God has given to us a message. And the message message hasn't changed in nearly 2,000 years. It's the same. And the message is simple. It's the gospel news of God's kingdom. God sent His Son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins so that we may dwell with Him in heaven. Too many people think they have to jazz up the gospel or they have to change the gospel to make it better relate to modern society. Okay? Or they think that the gospel, uh, they make the gospel out to be so difficult that you have to have a master's of divinity in order to understand it. Okay? The gospel isn't supposed to be like that. The message is the same that it's always been. And it's a very simple one. God loves you. God sent his son for you. So that by faith, through faith, you can be with him. It's that simple. 
There is no need to change it. And I believe there is beauty and there is power in the simplicity of the gospel message. And I understand people may have questions then, and we should be ready to provide answers to questions people may have. But listen, get the simple message out there first, and then deal with the questions as they come. Let's continue in our text. We'll take, um, uh, make a, a few more observations. Read with me verses 3 through 6. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Here in verse 3, Jesus tells the disciples how to pack for this mission he was sending them on. He tells them not to take anything for the journey, to pack extremely light and to not bring any extra stuff with them. You know, some of you might be wondering, why, why did Jesus send them out like that? Does he, does he want them to, to starve or to go cold or, you know, to be left out on the streets without any money or, you know, not have any kind of support for themselves? No, of course not. That's not it. Jesus sent them out in this manner so that they would learn to trust in the Lord. He was going to provide for them. He was going to lead them and guide them and make sure that their needs were taken care of. Jesus didn't want them trusting in their own provisions and in their own efforts. He wanted them to trust in the Lord completely for their needs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 state, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and then lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. You know, Pastor Chuck Smith, um, the longtime pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, the founder uh, of the Calvary Chapel movement, uh, he used to always say, where God guides, God provides. And you know what? It's true. I've seen it happen over and over in my life too many times to be considered a coincidence or happenstance. God is faithful to provide for his people all of their needs as they serve him and trust him and are being obedient towards him. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 attests, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We must trust in the Lord completely for all of our provision. We must remember that God takes care of his own and he will provide for our need as we are being obedient to his calling upon our life. If God is leading you to take a step of faith okay, or asking you to do something for him, be confident that he will provide for you as you are obedient to him. Well, Jesus also told his disciples to stay at the first place that welcomed them in and to remain there throughout the time they were in that area. And basically what Jesus was telling them was that they weren't to try and, you know, play favorites, or they weren't to try and find a better situation. If someone took them in, then they needed to stay with that person as long as they would have them. Jesus was teaching his disciples to be content with what God provided. They weren't to look to better their situation based upon what more they could possibly gain by going to a different place. Oh, this guy over here, he said we can come stay with them, and he's got a really nice bed, and he's got this and that. You know, no, 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 don't do that. Just stay wherever you've been 
welcome. Being content is something that Christ desires for all of us. In ministry, we must learn to be content with whatever the Lord brings our way. Paul knew and understood how to live with contentment. He wrote to the church in Philippi, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul was able to remain content in whatever situation he was in because he trusted that Christ was with him everywhere that he went and that through Christ he would be able to do whatever was needed for him. We need to have that same type of mentality. Our satisfaction must come from a deep-rooted understanding that Christ is with us and that he will see us through each circumstance we come through in our life. And that really is what it boils down to when it comes to contentment. Do we find our satisfaction in the presence of Christ or do we search for it in something else? When we are not content, when we are not satisfied, we're basically saying, Christ, you're not enough. What you've provided is not enough. I need more. And that applies to more than just materialistic goods, you guys. Okay? It applies to who we are, where we are, okay? not just what we have. Some people are not satisfied with who they are. They think that their status needs to change. They are looking for satisfaction, perhaps in a spouse. They don't like being single. Okay? They're looking for satisfaction in children. They want to become parents. Of course, those things aren't bad, but they are if we think that those things will bring us the satisfaction that only Christ can bring. Some people are not satisfied with where they are. They don't want to be where they are right now. They wish they were stationed somewhere stateside. They wish they could be closer to more friends, to more family, whatever it may be. Again, those things aren't necessarily bad unless, of course, we're not being content with where God has us now. It's okay to look forward to a change, okay, to a move. I know you guys, uh, most of you are like every three years you get the itch. You're like, it's time to go, right? I understand. It's okay. But if it hinders your ability to be content now in the place where God has you, then it's something that needs to change. Our satisfaction will only come through a deep-rooted relationship with Jesus Christ. He satisfies, and He wants us to be content in whatever situation He has us in knowing that he is with us and that is good enough for us, okay? Well, Jesus also gave them instructions in case they were not welcomed. He instructed them to shake off the dust under their feet as a testimony against those who would not receive them nor their message. Now, the act of shaking the dust from one's feet was a symbolic gesture of freeing yourself from any connection you may have with that place, as well as any responsibility for the guilt of their rejection of the message of God. This type of act was common in those days. Okay? It's similar to how Pilate washed his hands before the multitude, trying to rid himself of any responsibility associated with the outcome of Jesus. You guys may recall before uh, the trial before with Pilate, Jesus washes his hands and he says, I wash my hands of this situation. You know, his blood be upon you guys trying to, 
you know, relieve himself of any responsibility. In like manner, this shaking of the dust was like saying, hey, I'm not responsible for what's going to happen. It, it was a means of them symbolizing they didn't want to have any part of that place. This was actually something many Jews would do whenever they would exit from Gentile territory. They would shake the dust off of their feet because they don't want to bring anything that was unholy or unclean with them into the Holy Land. Now, for a Jew to do this to another Jew would be shocking, because the insinuation is that the disciples were cleansing themselves from the filth and unbelief of those people. It would serve as a testimony of their disbelief and their rejection of Jesus and his gospel message. An important thing to note here is that it wasn't the responsibility of the disciples to make people receive the message they shared. Okay? Their responsibility was to share the message, and that was it. If people chose not to believe or they rejected the message, they were to move on and bring the message to a new place. And I think there's a good principle here for us to be reminded of. You see, in ministry, we are not responsible for making people follow Christ. Though we are hopefully operating under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, ultimately, we are not the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to convict and, and show a person for their need, for a Savior. That is the work of God in the hearts and lives of, of an individual. God may use us, okay, but we can't take the place of the Holy Spirit. We can't try and replace Him and do His work for Him. Okay? We are to be faithful in preaching the message and using the gifts that He's given to us, but we can't make people believe. We need to be faithful with what God has given us, and we need to be okay with leaving the results to Him. Verse 6, it concludes this section by telling us how the disciples went out and they preached the gospel. They healed people everywhere they went. They were obedient to what Christ had called them to do. They did the works God had empowered them to do. Mark's gospel tells us that they preached a message of repentance in Mark chapter 6, verse 12. You know, repentance is not a message that gets shared so much nowadays. Many churches today preach a different gospel a gospel that is free of the need for repentance. They'll invite you to come as you are and that you don't need to change a thing, that you can have Jesus in your life and continue to live the life that you were living before Christ. Church family, that is not the gospel message that we find in the pages of Scripture. However, it is a description of something we do find in Scripture. It is a description of a time that would come that was described by Paul to young Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul exhorted Timothy. He said, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Listen, a gospel that does not contain the message of repentance is nothing more than a fable. It is a myth. It doesn't really exist, and it cannot save anyone. The whole gospel message, 
the good news of Jesus Christ also has as part of it the bad news of our sin and the penalty of our sin. That we have all fallen, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And ministry, we must be willing to share the whole gospel. We have a responsibility to do so. For in the gospel message is contained the power of God to salvation, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. If we don't share the whole gospel message, all we're doing is sharing fables and stories that won't do anyone any good when they stand before the Lord. Well, Let's take a look at this second small section in verses 7 through 9 that deal with the seeking of Jesus. Verse 7 says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. As Jesus was going out and teaching and preaching and performing all sorts of miracles throughout the region, it gained the attention of a lot of people. And here in verses 7 through 9, we read about how word of what Jesus was doing had reached Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this isn't the first time we've read about Herod the Tetrarch in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Recall, if you will, that this is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas really wasn't a king, okay? He had no kingdom. Uh, When Herod the Great died, the land that he ruled over was divided amongst his offspring. Herod Antipas was given a fourth of the kingdom. That's what the title Tetrarch means, okay? It means that you're the ruler of a fourth of a particular kingdom. In this case, it's referring to the kingdom that Herod the Great left behind. Herod Antipas was given the area of Galilee and Perea to rule over. And as Jesus ministered throughout that area, word spread and eventually came to Herod's attention. You also may recall from our earlier study of the Gospel of Luke, uh, back in Luke chapter 3, how Herod Antipas reacted to the preaching of John the Baptist. John was very bold in his declaration for the needed repentance and even called out Herod Antipas for his relationship with his then-wife Herodias, who happened to be his sister-in-law and niece. Okay, that was not, that was wrong, okay, (laughs) on many uh, uh, levels. John called out Herod for this relationship. Herod had John in prison for it, and we know eventually beheaded. When word came to Herod about a guy preaching the same message that John had preached and performing miracles, he was perplexed. Okay, the wording here is very strong. Herod was utterly perplexed, thoroughly perplexed. He was filled with great doubt, and we understand that he was filled with fear. You know, we get the sense from the other gospel accounts that Herod was extremely paranoid. 
and guilt-ridden over what he had done to John the Baptist in beheading him, and he was convinced that the messenger that he was hearing about was, in fact, John the Baptist come back to life. Matthew's account tells us that Herod responded, stating, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Matthew chapter 14, verse 2. Mark's gospel depicts Herod stating similarly. There the words are actually written in the imperfect tense, suggesting that Herod kept on saying it over and over again. It was as if he was saying, it's John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist. It's him. He's come back from the dead. It's him. I know it's him. Mark's gospel states the following. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said in the imperfect over and over again, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said it is Elijah, and others said it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard it, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Though there were conflicting reports coming in about the identity of Jesus, it would seem that Herod was convinced that it was John the Baptist come back to life. It was messing with his head. Okay, and he didn't know what to think. And so we're told that he sought for opportunity to see Jesus. And we understand that he wanted to be able to settle in his own heart and mind regarding who this man was. He will finally get this opportunity to meet with Jesus. It will be during Jesus's trial. Pilate will send him to Herod. Herod's very excited to see him, but Jesus has nothing to say to him. And Herod ends up sending him back never hearing from uh, Jesus himself. Though there, well, from this section, I see a few things worth noting. Okay, first of all, I think it important to note the overall impact of the ministry of John the Baptist and his testimony, okay, his legacy, if you will. John's work and ministry was so closely related to that of Jesus's that it caused Herod to believe they could be one and the same person. What an incredible testimony to have that the life you lived was like that of Jesus, that you would be mistaken for Jesus. What if that were said about you or better yet, let me ask you, could that be said of you? If, if Jesus showed up and started ministering in your community, would people hear about it and actually think it was you and not Jesus? People will start talking and they said, hey, hey, have you heard about that guy? He's going around. He's talking about the kingdom of God all the time, telling people about Jesus all the time, telling about, you know, he's got, they got to come to the Lord and they got to repent. And they'd say, oh, yeah, I know. That's Jonas. Yeah, I know that guy, right? Could, could they say that? Do our lives resemble that kind of devotion, that sort of commitment to Christ? In ministry, we're called to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, to live the kind of life that He lived, to be filled with compassion, to seek to help the hurting and the lost, to bring healing and restoration, to preach the message of the coming kingdom of God. John the Baptist's life looked like and resembled the life of Jesus And that is what we all should want for ourselves as well. I'm not saying that people should think that we are God, okay, that we are Jesus because we fall so short, okay? But our life ought to look something like that of Christ. 
Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18 speaks of speaks of how you and I are being transformed into the image of Christ. And Romans chapter 8, verse 29 tells us that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Transformed speaks of the ongoing work of being molded and shaped into the image of Christ, while conformed speaks of that finished product. You see, our lives ought to point people to Christ as we are continually being transformed into the image of Christ. As we continue to walk with the Lord day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, our life should look more and more like that of Christ. Now, we're not conformed to His image completely just yet. Okay, God's still working on us. But the hope is that each day we look more and more like Him. And the other thing I believe we must note here in this section, is regarding the true identity of Jesus. The question that Herod asks, who is this of whom I hear such things, is the most important question. Who is Jesus? Is a question we must all ponder and come up with the correct answer for. Properly identifying who Jesus is, is directly connected to how you will spend all of eternity. We all must properly identify who Jesus is. And listen, just like in Herod's day, there were all sorts of varying views and opinions out there being circulated. Oh, some say that it's, you know, John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say that it's Elijah. Some say that it's the prophet. Some say that he's like a prophet. And they had all these different thoughts and opinions. Listen, today's no different. There are many today who think they know who Jesus is. They think they've properly identified him, but they are mistaken. The Mormons say Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer the devil. The Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is Michael the archangel. The Muslims believe, like some in our text this morning, that Jesus was just a prophet, but not the son of God. Christian science teaches that Jesus was simply a good man. The Hindus acknowledge Jesus to be a holy man and a saint, and they view him as some sort of avatar of their own false god. You see, all of these groups are wrong in their assessment, okay? Or they're drastically incomplete. Jesus is not the spirit brother of the devil. Jesus is not an angel. He is more than a prophet, more than a good man more than a holy man, and more than a saint. He is the one and only begotten Son of God. He is the second person in the Holy Trinity. He is 100% man and at the same time 100% God. He is the only one capable of saving us from our sins and granting us entry into eternity with the Father. He is the Lord of Lords, and He is our only Redeemer and Savior. If Jesus isn't both Lord and Savior of your life, you've got the wrong Jesus. You haven't properly identified Him. And you are at risk of spending eternity separated from Him in a place called hell, a place that was created for the devil and his minions. Don't make the same mistake these others have in not properly identifying Jesus as both Lord and Savior of your life. Before you do anything else this year, make sure you have properly identified Jesus and that you have responded 
to the gospel message by receiving Christ by faith as your personal Lord and Savior and repenting. It's a change of mind, understanding who Christ is and what he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for just these truths that we can glean as we go through your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to take these truths and apply them to our lives. Lord, that we would be like these disciples who were being sent out, that we would understand the calling you have upon our lives, that we would understand the mission field that you are sending us to, Lord, that we would uh, understand the simplicity of the gospel message uh, that you've given to us to share. And Lord, I pray that we would do so by your Holy Spirit strength in us. Lord, that we would be faithful to share you with the world around us and that you'd use us to turn this world towards you. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who have yet to receive you as Lord and Savior of their life, who've yet to respond to the gospel message, Lord, that today would be the day that they do so. That they would know who you are and what you've done for them. And they would receive by faith the work of the cross, the work of your resurrection, the defeat of sin and death that you accomplished, Lord. And Lord, that they would walk with you for the rest of their days. Lord, I pray that you would minister to us as we look to just transition into a time of communion. May you lead and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.